Want to cut cooling bills without cutting comfort? Lower utility costs and enjoy cool and consistent comfort with a highly efficient air conditioner from Luxair. With Luxair's consumer rebate program, educators, nurses, first responders, military personnel, and veterans can enjoy exclusive rebates on qualifying purchases of Luxair equipment. To learn more, call Chris Brewer at Affordable Heat and Air, 317-656-7945. They'll recommend a system tailored to your home that provides comfort, energy savings, and lasting performance. This is Trackside with Kirk Cavan and Kevin Lee on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Mark James, we're ready for the 107th running. The honorary starter, actor, Hoosier, Adam Driver is in the flag stand. Fans on their feet and the green flag flies on the 2023 Indianapolis 500 into turn number one. Front row immediately got single file as Alex Pillow leads them into turn number one. They fan out two and three wide further back. Front of the field looks good. Michael, the rear is clear as well. Green flag at the Indy 500. And he streaks away from Marcus Erickson and now Rosenquist is under attack. Here comes Joseph Newgar. Swinging to the outside of that shell car. Newgard moves the third line, and it looks like Rosenquist just tagged the wall, Michael. He's into the wall. Felix Rosenquist spins. He'll slide back into traffic. He'll clip Kyle Kirkwood. Kirkwood goes upside down. Kirkwood slides around the outside retaining wall. Felix Rosenquist car at the exit of turn number two. Oh, my goodness, what a horrible crash. As we saw the machine of Felix Rosenquist slide, Kyle Kirkwood caught him at the midway point, goes into the air. That car sets upside down to the exit of turn number two. Caution at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. They will complete lap 192 this time by, and Pato Award comes off of turn number four and sees the green flag fly as we're ready for the restart. Side-by-side battle to start finish line with Joseph Newgarden in pursuit. Eight laps, 20 miles, and it's going to be Joseph Newgarden who leads them into turn number one. They fan out further back, but Newgarden, the American Rockets, to the race lead. How about this kid from Tennessee driving for Team Penske, a five-car length advantage over Marcus Harrison. Pato Award there at the third position. We have battles further back. Santino Ferrucci trying to get around Rossi. And Pato Award's going to go to the bottom of the racetrack, side-by-side side with Marcus Harrison for second. Award's not going to make it through. Caution Black's going to come out. Pato Award hits the wall. They're on their feet. They have been on their feet all day long in a good battle. Side-by-side, side, three wide at the start-finish line. And we got a crash mark right before the yard of bricks. Ferrucci and Erickson are keeping their foot in the throttle as they go side-by-side. Side. Now they'll have to check up as we look to that accident on the front stretch. Pace car has left the track and a quick start for the defending champ, Marcus Erickson. Joseph Newgarden, five car lengths behind. He saw the green flag and he flat got on it, did Erickson. But here comes Joseph Newgarden in turn number one. Erickson weaving back and forth like he did a year ago to try to protect that lead. He'll do it in turn number one. Erickson, Newgarden, and Ferrucci. Marcus Erickson trying to win back to back Indianapolis 500s, but here comes Joseph Newgarden. He's closed in on that rear wing. He has an amazing run down that back straightaway. Erickson goes behind the white line, and it's Joseph Newgarden swinging to the outside for the final time. Joseph Newgarden has taken the lead of the Indianapolis 500 with just two turns to go. Marcus Erickson on his heels. Newgarden into turn number four. Erickson looks to the inside, looks to the outside. Newgarden has a two-car length lead. Advance Auto Park, twin checkered flag in the air. It's a battle at the start-finish line, and Joseph Newgarden will win the Indianapolis 500-mile race. Finally, finally, I'm so... I think I've cried out. The emotion's gone. I had it. I had a ton of emotion there for a little bit, but I'm just thankful to the team that we finally got this done. 
you know, I, I, I was trying to put it off that, you know, it's not going to define a career winning a race here, but, but everyone seems to want to make it a defining moment. And so for me, you know, it's impossible to not look at it that way. And, and I'm elated to finally get it to work out. You know, it's, it's, this is way more than me. This is the entire team. They built an amazing car. The crew, Tim, calling an amazing strategy. RP for sticking with us, giving us the faith. So I, I you know, I can't speak enough about the team effort because that's what it takes. Oh, I mean, P2, it was where we needed to be. If it was gonna, if it was gonna restart. I think that's the position you wanted. And you know, thankfully, uh, we had a fast car. You know, this shell car was unbelievable with our partners and this team that put it together. So we, we had exactly what we needed today. Your trip into the stands to celebrate. Where did that idea come oh, from? I've been waiting to do that. I've always wanted to go in the crowd here at Indy. There's nothing like it. And uh, I'm just so thankful, you know, to, to, to be here, to, to have a shot to run this race. It's, I will never forget this for my, for my life. Maybe an Indy 500 for the ages. Hello, welcome. Trackside, back to weekly two-hour program tonight. And every Tuesday night throughout the summertime, fall time, most Tuesdays in the wintertime, pending Pacer games. Sometimes we flip around a bit. Great to have you with us. Eddie Garrison is in our downtown studios. I'm Kevin Lee along with Kurt Cavan at Kevin Lee 23 at Kurt Cavan via Twitter. If you have something for us tonight, highlights courtesy of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Radio Network, IndyCar Radio with the call as heard here on the radio over the weekend of Joseph Newgarden breaking through to win the Indianapolis 500. We got some of our bold predictions right. We got some of them wrong. That's what's great about it. Had no idea who was going to win. Uh, we all picked Ganassi's. They didn't win, but they still had four cars in the top seven. Alas, you can win from outside 12. I still had New Garden fairly high up in the tiers. He wins the race. And... Uh, despite him telling me on Thursday, no, there's no pressure. No pressure as a Team Penske driver. Yeah, there is a huge weight lifted. I expect to see the Steve Young old uh, visual from when he won the Super Bowl playing in Joe Montana's shadows, kind of mimicking getting the monkey off his back. All the demons are exercised. Joseph Newgarden has won the Indianapolis 500. And oh, the other one too, Kurt. Did we not talk about Joseph when you say who's the best for the sport? Who's the best? Did did we mention him much? If not, that's on us because he should have been right up there with Pato and Graham Rahal and anybody else. I'll admit the last month's been a blur, but in hindsight, he's the guy. He's the guy you want representing you and is going to get you in new places. Well, you know, we may have in the last moments talked about Pato Ward because he represents essentially two nationalities, two countries. Um, and we like Graham Rahal and Marco Andretti for their name value. But I think it was almost stating the obvious that Joseph is is the future of this sport. Let me give you a stat that, that I came across yesterday that was somewhat mind-boggling because we, we've spent a lot of time – you know, talking about how long this journey has been for Joseph in terms of like 12, this is his 12th attempt at winning the 500, which uh, ties Sam Hanks and uh, Tony Kanaan. But uh, by the way, Tony, uh, Sam Hanks actually was in a 13th, didn't make the race one year, didn't start the race, made the race, didn't start the race like his second oh, year. Because I've been getting 
different stat. I've been getting confused and I've been going back and forth. I was told that Hanks had the record one more than Kanan. Uh, and then well, I've been seeing that it's equaled. So that makes some sense. Okay. I think it was Hank's second year. He made the race and like had a crash in practice. Something was goofy about that, but he's technically listed as being in the, in the event, but not in the race. He didn't start the race, but at any rate, let me give you this stat. We talk about Joseph being a kind of a long way into this career before he won the 500 of the previous 106 Indianapolis 500s, get this, 55 of them, the driver was older than Joseph is right now. The winning driver was older than Joseph is. What that tells me is, as a race car driver and an Indy 500 driver, even in this era when maybe guys make enough money and they you know, call it a day, Joseph's got a lot of years left. He, he has you know, just a lot of time to accumulate more wins. So if this one was a relief, as he said it was, and he described as such, then the pressure's off moving forward. This could be a multi-time winner. Are we looking at four? Possibly, maybe, maybe not. But I think more are certainly within reach now. Well, he's definitely going to be relaxed, and it's kind of fulfilled everything now. He's he's won as many races as Johnny Rutherford. Think about that. He's still a very young man. He's 32, 33 in that range. And you're right that, yeah, that didn't surprise me at all that he's younger than about a half the winners because, you know, back in the day, you weren't allowed to start driving until you were 18 years old or 21 and have a license. And, you know, the Rathmans lied about it and changed the names. And that's how, if you want to go back to Donald Davidson shows, why, what, Jim is really Dick and Dick is really Jim because they were fudging on birth certificates with their brother to be able to get in into racing. Um, but now you can be 19 years old and, and Joseph at whatever he was, 22 when he got started. Um, so, no, it will not surprise me whether he wins more or not. The career is fulfilled because he's going to win a lot more races He's probably going to win another championship or two, and now he's going to be talked about. Maybe he should have been already, but fair or not, probably unfair, but you have to win this race to be considered at a certain level. And it's not really fair, because I think all of us in the sport uh, or paying close attention to the sport knew that Joseph Newgarden was one of the greats of his generation, but now the people not paying that much attention, and it's just easier to tick that off. You've won the Indy 500. You've won championships. You're going to be top 10 on the all-time win list. He's already something like 13th, um, maybe a little bit outside of that, but he's getting there. And he did it in very uh, entertaining and somewhat controversial fashion. I don't know where we want to start. I think we just start with the finish of the race and maybe go from back to front. Well, let me let me just say one of the reasons why you have to win this race is because there are no fluke winners of the Indy 500 or in uh, history would yeah. tell you there are very yep. few. So, I mean, I will look back uh, yesterday in the 2000s, with the exception of Pelot, who has, you know, very young, young tread on these tires and Sebastian Bourdais since 2000, there are no series champions that didn't win an Indy 500. So it's not like 
you know, it's not like this is the Daytona 500 where Trevor Bain, who will never win a, you know, a NASCAR Cup championship, wins the Daytona 500. And while it's a similar, you know, you have to have a lot of luck to win this race. This race, people don't luck into the Indy 500. Yes, uh, b- by the way, I think Buddy Rice is 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 an exception. But the point is, there haven't been guys, uh, you know, who have you know, who have won the race by a fluke situation. And, and Buddy's wasn't a fluke, by the way, he just wasn't a series champion. But in that case, the race was half dist or didn't go the complete distance. And it could have easily been the other half of the field that won that day as well. So, you know, it's, um, you do need to win the Indy 500. I know Joseph would like to think otherwise. And in that ho- that comment there with Ryan Marine was, was well stated, I thought, you know, he's been trying to sort of convince himself uh, that winning an Indy 500 is not that important. I mean, it's not defining, I guess is the better way to say it, but it is. And uh, and so, you know, he's fought that walk in the line, but it's because he hadn't won it yet. And, you know, he the, the strange part about it is he really hadn't been that close to winning it. You know, there have been other drivers Pillow is a good example. Pillow has been much closer to winning the Indy 500 until yes, until Sunday than Joseph had been. Uh, but, you know, some guys make it across the finish line in the lead and some don't. And uh, so anyway, it's it is it is perfect that he is now an Indy 500 winner. And, and I think along those lines, it's what you say to yourself to maybe try to take some pressure off yourself. I remember Kanan saying the same thing around 11 or 12. You know, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And Kanan was in that group that he could have, should have won the thing two, three times, like Michael Andretti and like Mario uh, for a second time. And and like Dixon, who easily could have won the thing three, four, five more times in that case. But but you're right. There are not fluke winners. And while I was waiting to, to talk with Rossi uh, on the pre-race show, I was chatting with him about that. And I said, you know, I'll be honest, you were a surprise winner, but you've backed it up. While we didn't expect Alexander De Rossi to win that, he has since proven that he's legit because he's been there every year. He's won multiple races. He's been a championship contender. So, you know, he would be uh, the one that hasn't won a championship. And that other maybe surprise a bit, along with Buddy Rice, would be a Takuma Sato as a two-time winner who has never contended for a championship, but he was a Formula One driver. And he came to IndyCar relatively late in his career, and he wasn't with big, strong teams until really late in his career. So I would not consider Sato a fluke, but but he probably fits that mix of he's one of the few that's... So, so how many have not won double-digit races? Maybe that's the way to look at it. Sato... Rossi, Rossi will though win double digit races before he's done. I think Erickson is going to get the double digit races before he's done. And by what he did this year, even though he didn't win, he proved it's legit. Um, I'm I'm going back and Kenny Breck may not have won double digit, but it was not a long career. Because right. of injury. You Eddie know, one, Cheever, but he spent he did, a long time in Formula One. Well, that's the thing with Sato, the thing with Cheever, the thing with uh, with Erickson. 
I mean, these are guys with, you know, 100 plus starts in Formula One. Erickson had 99. But, you know, that's I had this argument with uh, Owen Snyder the other day. Owen was the crew chief, chief mechanic on not only Al Jr.'s winning car, but but Cheevers as well. And Cheevers in 98, we were talking about kind of this very topic. And he, he couldn't put Cheever in, in one of those fluke winners because he said the guy had 130-some Formula One starts. You don't have a career like that yeah. without being extremely talented. And, you know, he, run, he won races like four or five straight years in an era, by the way, where they didn't have 17 races when Cheever was running in, in the IRL. There were, there were some of those early years – of the IRL where there were like nine races. So it, you know, it's difficult to come up with double digit race, race total when, when you don't have that many races, but you know, again, no fluke in Sato in his talent. He wouldn't have been in formula one that long with, with no, without a lot, without a lack of talent, with a lack of talent, same with Cheever, same with uh, Marcus Erickson. And Ari Leindyke is maybe one that also comes to mind. He wasn't, he didn't win a lot of races outside of Indianapolis. He was great here for many years, different types of cars, the fastest ever. And then even after they slowed things down, he won again. So, um, you know, so, some guys are some drivers are better at some tracks than others. And Ari was in that category and was always really strong here. All right, let's get to this year's race. Uh, and, and maybe that's the way to do it. We'll go from the end on backward. Uh, to earlier uh, circumstances, let's talk about red flag. That's what people want to talk about. A red flag in a circumstance, and many Twitter questions answering this. Well, wait a minute. They said they couldn't do this in that circumstance with even a lap or two more when Takuma Sato won in 2020. Why did it happen this time? <laughs> when you ask a question like that, I can't answer it. Uh, all yeah. I know is they were trying hard to to – Finish this thing under green. I applaud that. I don't know what's changed since since uh, the previous uh, time that you reference, but um, you know, my first initial re- you know reaction was, uh, man, they sh- if they could have just gone gone to pit lane the lap before and then had a proper one lap, kind of get the tires cleaned off and get everybody set and. You know, everybody bunched up like you want to have it. Just just have a perfect situation for a one-lap shootout. I think that would have been more ideal. Um, so I was a little bit, you know, boy, this this doesn't feel right. Uh, not just for Erickson. It just didn't – it just seemed – it seemed unique. And then I came back home and watched the replay, and, and I could see the – just kind of the perfectness of, of how it played to the masses. And – and I thought it was the right decision. Um, you know, the fan reaction, not just from people in the sport, but the people outside of the sport. And I think the the national reaction was was great for the for the race. It was great for the sport. And I think, you know, I applaud them for that. So now I, it's like um, I think it was Ferrucci who first said it. You know, I can see both. Oh, Kanan said it. He said, I can see both sides of this. You could argue it to me either way. Again, at the moment, I, I, I wondered about it. And after I saw it on television later in the night, just kind of stepping back from it as a fan, uh, I really liked it. One thing that uh, someone pointed out to me today, difference from 2020, 
there were no fans in the stand. That is there maybe more of an effort when you've got 330,000 people there to send them home happy. Also, I've heard differing accounts of this. I remember at the time, the thought was, well, that's going to take an hour to get the race going again. And that's not good for anybody. It's not good for your audience on television. It's not good for your television partner. And then a few days later, someone told me, now we could have probably got that going in another 20 minutes. Yeah, that's, but you've got 45 seconds to make that decision. And I suspect that the first 45 seconds when they're making that decision, they looked at that like we all did and said, ooh, that's going to take a long time. Uh, Unfortunately, we can't do this. The other part of this might be that they looked at that and said, you know what? Um, Yeah, that's not ideal, having two laps left and trying to restart again. But we need to think about, is there a way to do that? Um, If at all possible. Because I know at the time it was explained, you know, there's a certain, and, and by the way, when you want to talk about the rule book and we can find what the rule is written, but it essentially says we have the right to make the best decision we think is available at the time. And there is no hard and fast rule on what you're going to do. And I have asked IndyCar officials about defining something. And I've talked about this on this show, that it does leave a gray area. And I'm sure that Chip Ganassi Racing is not happy because their thought was probably once you get inside five laps, if there's a crash, the race is over. Now, that said, IndyCar has never said that. And they have always said, because I've asked, can we give a definite time when the race is over? And the answer has been no. It's never been said when we get to lap 196 or 197, the race is over. It's been, well, it's, and I'm paraphrasing, and I hope I'm relaying this accurately. It's been, it's probably going to be over, but we can't guarantee that. And, you know, maybe we don't want to define that. I think you brought this up before. Maybe somebody in the back, uh, a teammate decides that I'm going to cause a caution at, at the end of the race once we get to a certain point and my teammate is is out in front. So I, I will get their side of things here. I do wonder if how much discussion is going to be from other teams that we need this written down. I fear I feel IndyCar's position though. Now we were already over time on NBC, uh, and luckily the network said have the time that you want. But there could be a scenario some year where there is a big event that has a bigger audience than this coming up, and you cannot do it if you want to stay on television past a certain time, especially if it's going to take a long time. So I get why they're reluctant to define something in the rule, but you are leaving yourself open to people saying it was manipulated and you get to choose whether someone wins the race or not. And I believe ultimately they chose entertainment and satisfying the fans and letting it be decided by the competitors on the track. You know, we can all say it's, it's a show, but it's also, it gave us a better chance of, of seeing who was the winner. Here's the other thing I thought in real time. As that caution came out, my first thought was, oh, no, 
because I thought the race was over because it's too late, but I don't know who's in front. It's PT and Elio in 2002 all over again. When did the yellow light come on? When was the call made? It was almost three wide. Who was in front? And my fear was, and, and that was one thought where I thought, well, maybe they can figure out a way to red flag this because it may not be 100% clear who was in front. Then after I saw some replays, I do feel like they had that, right? It, it yes. became pretty clear that that it was Erickson, Newgarden, Ferrucci. I was listening to Ferrucci's radio, which probably led, and I know he's going to be biased, but it led to my concern about it being clear because he not only thought he was second, he thought he was leading and was adamant about that. And the team was you know, looking into it and they were talking with the tech official there at that point. So those are just some early rambling thoughts that I have all through this. And I'll also read you. Uh, Charlie Crawl posted this on Twitter. Uh, Charlie's been in the motorsport business for a while, and he's uh, a, a media relations guy for the Arca series, who I know. And, and I thought he summed this up pretty decently. Today is one of those days where you can't find a solution that's perfect. You just find what you believe is the least worst option. Lots of people are upset with how that race finished, but lots are happy. That's the way of the world these days. If yep. you call that race over... People are going to be apoplectic on that as well and ripping IndyCar for being small minded and not being willing to adjust and sticking to their, quote, old fashioned rules instead of thinking about the big picture and letting it be decided on track and giving us a show. They were going to get criticized no matter what in this. And that that's where I feel for them. As I agree with all of that. I think it was a, a no no win, no lose type situation, if you will. I just wish in hindsight they could have brought the cars and I'm surprised they didn't do this because you had two cars on the front yeah. on the front straightaway that they didn't bring them down pit road instead of bringing them through the middle of the accident scene. And then they could have made that call to to stop them there. But I think they had 15 seconds to make their minds up on that, right? Well, I, no, they had more than 15. But I mean, because your cars they? were okay. in, they well, the cars were at start finish when the accident happened. I mean, you yeah. did have more than 15. I don't know how much time. And the point you're making is accurate. It's a it's a bang bang. You got to make a decision. And look, I don't envy the guys up there making that call at all. This is a challenging thing. So they, they did the best they could. And we got a. As I said, when I came home and watched it on television, I was like, this this turned out really well. This is really the best the best out for the situation for everybody but Marcus Erickson. Yep. Yeah. And, and I was, you know, standing there in their pit and listening to the thoughts that Marcus and, and others had about that. Um, I think it happened the way I would want it to happen uh, because it was decided on the racetrack. I feel awful for Marcus. Here's a thought to help out race control. I wonder if, and, and maybe Jay Fry is doing this up there, helping Kyle Novak. Kyle Novak's the race director oh, that yeah. ultimately yeah, is absolutely, in, absolutely. But, but but I mean, so he's got so much going on that he's managing the race. He's trying to figure out what positions are going on. You almost need like an associate producer. So I'm going to think at it from television standpoint. It works well from what I've learned in our business. Um, for example. Renee Hadalid is the producer. She's telling the director what shots we want. She's deciding which announcers get to speak, where we're going. And then you have a couple of other people who 
can step away. Executives from NBC or John Barnes, uh, one of our senior producers who might be able to help and isn't deciding what shot is next and can step away and think big picture. All right. What if this happens? And that, that's what's going on behind the scenes. She doesn't have to decide what our out time is. Someone else not working can do that. In this case, it, that y- you almost have to think ahead. All right. We're restarting with four to go. If they crash here, we've got two scenarios. One, it's a cleanup in five or ten minutes. What are we doing? Two, it's going to take a half hour plus. What are we doing? It's going to be when it when it happens, we've got 20 seconds to decide that. And we've made the decision in advance. And maybe that was already being done. It just took an extra 30 seconds. But that's maybe one of the conversations that you can have happen in the future to expedite that and maybe give you one more lap. And then no one's complaining about you didn't have time to warm up your tires. The other thing I would say, though, is in a 10 minute red flag, it's not like they were sitting for 45 minutes. I don't think the tires would have been totally ice cold in that situation, but I also, I don't know that. It's certainly frightening, you know, hitting in one lap by the time they get to turn three, you know, they're probably up to full speed. So that's, that's a little scary. Um, But boy, it created a memorable event. It did. It did. And it was like I said, it was a terrific finish. And, and I'm glad the decision came as it did. Um, but to your point about how it's structured, there are about, I'm going to guess, 12 to 15 people in race control and different people have different expertise. They have uh, one person who is in direct contact with with the television partner. Uh, there is another one looking at Kyle will say, give me the order. And there is someone there, two people, I think, even, who are knowing where the cars are and where they should mm-hmm. be and who's out of order and, and so forth. And he's got he's got multiple people he can count on. And, of course, Jay is there. So, so you know, he has everything he needs to make the right decision. He's got the two stewards uh, speaking to, you know, penalty or no penalty. Not, you know, mm-hmm. degree of penalty, but, you know, what's – is there a penalty here or not? And so, you know, there was uh, he's got every every tool. It's as I said, it was a very difficult situation in the heat of the moment. And and I think it worked out right. You know, what's amazing to me is how close, depending on to your point, when the caution came out, reminiscent of 2002, it was very, very close that Ferrucci would have lined up second. And if Ferrucci lines yeah. up second, He's probably your Indianapolis 500 champion today because it was you talk about bang, bang, split second, you know, game deciding situations. Whoever was in second place was probably going to win the race, barring some unique thing. And, And we'll, by the way, argue this. But I often wondered over the last 36 hours, would Marcus have been wise to let Joseph go in turn one to get him back in turn three? Uh, but he got too good of a lead going into one and Joseph couldn't make a run, but he had a run coming off too. So anyway, we came really close to Santino Ferrucci winning the race. Had he cleared Joseph on the front straightaway when the caution came out or before the caution came out, Ferrucci's probably your Indy 500 winner. 
And up next, I want to talk about the last lap and the, the strategy that Joseph Newgarden used and also debate the snake. We'll do that and plenty more at Kevin Lee 23 at Kurt Cabin. Trackside 93.5, The Fan. Hi. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. This is Joseph Newgarden, and you're listening to Trackside. Joseph Newgarden has won the Indianapolis 500, and for IndyCar fans, very disappointed that we have, what, 362 days? I think someone counted that up until the 108th Indianapolis 500. This is why I don't get quite as disappointed. There's a little bit of a day after Christmas feeling, but uh, there's an IndyCar race this weekend in Detroit that I want to talk about more. I'm, I'm really excited about this event. Being in downtown Detroit, I think it's going to be unique. It's going to have a lot of energy. Uh, if you're in the area, if you listen to us, look into this because there are a lot of free viewing areas. That's one of the things that Penske Entertainment has done. Um, we know that that's one of Roger Penske's hometowns, and this is something that he works with, with local community leaders, and he wants to bring an event to downtown Detroit, so there are opportunities to go for free this weekend. So please take a look at that, and we'll get more into that in a moment. But we have more to talk about in the Indianapolis 500. Final laps, working our way from end to early. I think Joseph Newgarden might have won the race, and maybe he was going to anyways, because as Ferrucci told me, as Newgarden said afterwards, as everyone kind of thought, you preferred to be in second. The only fallback to that was that we all felt, well, if there's a, a crash within the last four laps or so, or five laps, that's the end of it. So in some ways, once you got to lap 197 or 198, you're really risking it because if at any time you're not in front and the race ends, you're not going to have a chance. But if you could guarantee it was going to stay green, you wanted to be second. I think if you watch again, Marcus Erickson does the snake, weaving back and forth to try to break the draft. And most of the other time, the follow cars, the trail cars, have followed. Joseph Newgarden did not. He ran his normal line into turn one, which would seem to me be quicker. It's quicker to go to straight line than weave around. And I suspect that's what got him a better exit. And remember, they're not up to full speed yet. So I don't think the draft helps as much going into one as it does when you're going a full 225 miles per hour. Then he exits out of two, and he's right on him. And Marcus tries the snake again, and Joseph follows him for a bit. He dips down low and then comes around. So that was my first thought there. Second thought is, I've asked this question before, and I'm going to ask it again, and I believe we might be dancing with a possible catastrophe uh, I really think a deep think is going to need to be done. And I asked this before this year, if it should be, if there is going to be anything to keep someone from going below the white line, I don't know how you can outlaw the snake because it's not blocking. You can do anything you want as long as you make the first move. So you can weave around the, the front stretch however you want, but I would think you could make a rule to keep 
a driver from going below the line and they're going below the line. And I thought on the last lap, Marcus Erickson was going into the pit wall. And if he does, I fear we don't have an Indy 500 anymore because not only is that going to be horrible for the driver, I don't know where that car is going to end up. Well, um, I, so this I needs, I think this needs to be dealt with. I don't know that I'll go that far because I've seen other drivers hit the pit attenuator. You're right, but I just don't want to take I mean, that I, chance. Your point, is, <laughs> your point is well taken. Here's the difference. We talk about the white line, and I don't want people to, to confuse the issue. We have a white line that goes around the racetrack, and there have been different times, in different times through Indy 500 recent history, where sometimes the line was in play, sometimes it wasn't. We talk about it, we don't talk about it, whatever. The line we're talking about is at the entrance to the pit lane, and and that line is known as a pit commit line. And if mm-hmm. you go inside the pit commit line, you are required to pit. Same as Alex Pillow last year, he was inside the pit commit line and then had to had to pit. You know, even though he, there was a chance he could have possibly dodged it, but he was committed to pit lane because he was in the pit commit zone. And I haven't gone out there to measure it. I don't have the right camera angle, but my suspicion is they crossed the pit commit line. To me, well, I, I got in- a still shot here that somebody found that maybe you can see here as, as we they're inside do the pit face- commit line. Uh, they're, they're not, they are a full car length. Inside the pit line, a car length and a half. You could fit a car and a half to the right. Past so, both by, lines, the the angled line, which is the path in, and then the little dash line, which is right. Joseph Newgarden is lined up. He no longer needs to go any further left, and he is in the fast lane. He's just going straight into the pit lane. Now, he also knows... They're not black flagging him here at this point. No one wants to black flag the leader uh, going to the checkered flag of the Indianapolis 500. But if that is laid down in advance, you know what? They black flag Scott Goodyear leading the Indy 500 in 1997. So officials will make a move that they feel is necessary to be made. So I, I do think if this is spoken of enough that if you go below there, we ain't kidding you're getting black flagged. They won't do it. Well, here's the thing. This isn't to me about, you know, following your rule book. This isn't even about, you know, should we or shouldn't we on the last lap? My point is, it's just not safe. It's just not safe. It's okay for the lead car. The lead car can see where he's going. Let me see that again. Let me see that picture. Hold that back up. I mean, Marcus is, he can see at this point. But they, if he's right behind him, there's two observations I want to make about this. If he's right behind him as he is, he can't necessarily see that, that attenuator coming. And two, did you notice that Santino Ferrucci isn't following that path? He's going in the boundary of what is established to be. Um, anyway, it just doesn't. It just doesn't. He's probably thinking like if those a, guys crash each other. I'm winning the race, and actually, yep. he was told that on the radio late in the race that these two guys are going to fight. Be smart; you might end up in the lead before that last restart. 
I just I just don't feel I, I don't feel good about about it off turn four. Off turn two is less of a problem. There's more space back there. Uh, there's Agreed. not an attenuator. Uh, there's grass where Canaan went. Which, by the way, I saw several you, people say this. We'll talk about that pass that later. But that's when you knew this was Kanan's last race, and he was going wherever he thought was best to pass a car. But anyway, let's get back to the. I just don't feel. I feel like it's trouble waiting to happen. Doing that coming off turn four. Um, what else going from the end to you know maybe the next big moment late in the race? was Pato Award. Very angry about Marcus Erickson not leaving him room. He seemed to backtrack a little bit. You know, I know the the banquet is not really the place to really throw down on people, so I'll be interested when I see Pato this weekend what he thinks. I hear him, but, you know, what he basically said at the banquet was, yeah, I kind of get it. I'm, it sounded like he was saying it was Marcus. I might have done it the same way. You're just not leaving room for anybody. Uh, at the end of the Indy 500. You're going to take what you think is your line, and if you want to pass someone, you're passing at your own risk. It's just interesting because, and it's not the same thing, but it is similar to the discussion we had after Long Beach when he and Scott Dixon went into the same corner, and they both could have probably done something different to avoid that contact that sent Dixon into the tire barrier. But, you know... I would also say that history has shown us 1989 is a great example that when you get down low like that, like Pato was trying to do, you kind of are at the mercy of the car that's still ahead of you. I mean, he stuck his Mm -hmm. nose in there and he probably could have got some fair game from the car in front of him, but he's not assured anything right there. It's a, that's a, precarious position to put yourself hoping or trusting that the guy's going to give you room. Sometimes you got to either got to make your own room or take the, take your room when it's offered to you, but not like hope the guy gives it to you. You know what I mean? Was this pretty similar to Sato versus Dario in 12? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty similar, different end of the racetrack, but but yeah, I mean, it's sticking your nose in there and it didn't work. I, you know, 89 was a great example in turn three with Al Jr. and Emerson. But but uh, this was similar to Sato and, and Franchitti at the opposite corner of the racetrack. Um, all right. I want to I want to get a few Twitter questions in and have a real next segment. So we'll step away here and we'll have time to chat in the next segment, finishing up the first hour. More Twitter questions are welcome at Kevin Lee 23. We're going to go through the box score. Uh, there's some new news today. I want to talk about Detroit and plenty more all coming up. Trackside 93.5107.5 The Fan. Hi. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. This is Mark Erickson and you're listening to Trackside. On 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. Hey, another one I pretty much got wrong, although I guess I got right. I said, you know, I've got no reason to say this, but just odd say you're not winning it for a second year in a row. You ain't coming any closer than that. Marcus Erickson is disappointed, but he earned himself a whole lot of money 
he essentially oh, yeah. won the Indy 500 for the second year in a row. And while he may not be able to talk to anyone, a lot of people are talking to him today. I, I thought the same thing. I was thinking to myself, yeah, he didn't win the Indy 500, but if you were fielding a good car tomorrow, who would you want in the car? If he's not in your first two calls, I wonder what your call list looks like or what race you're watching because that guy has been great the last two years. Yeah, he's your number one free agent. Uh, Something to keep in mind, which does still lead me to think – now, I have no idea what the financials are. But if Chip Ganassi can come close to matching – He might stay because he might really want to stay with Brad Goldberg. I really do think they have a very special relationship, and I think that becomes more evident late in the race. Brad's not the strategist. Taylor Kyle, who is very, very well regarded and awesome at his job, is the strategist. But Brad is the one because he has the longer relationship. And I'm sure Taylor is, you know, Brad, you know him better than I do. I've only been working with him for four months. You talk to him here. You make sure he's in his happy place. And now the other part of this is makes it even because it's not just drivers that go to Errol McLaren. It's engineers. So if Brad Goldberg's contract is up after this year, that's going to be a package offer, right? Yeah. yeah. Wherever, if Marcus is headed somewhere, either Andretti or McLaren are going to be offering Brad Goldberg a job as well. So it's going to be in in Chip Ganassi's best interest to do everything they can. And maybe he doesn't want to shift him to the American Legion car. You know, NTT data is already gone, right? That's already that preceded and went with Polo is waiting for him when he goes over to McLaren. It's on on Rosenquist's car. Um, but from the Ganassi standpoint, hopefully they can figure out a way to make that happen. I, I think they will. I just have thought that from the get-go. But to your point about Goldberg and Erickson, the first thing I thought of was Kanan and Eric Cowden. And they mm-hmm. had a follow-me type of situation um, because of their relationship as well. For the love of Indy says, you asked how many Indy 500 winners have at least 10 career IndyCar victories. 31 of the 40 drivers with at least 10 career victories won the Indianapolis 500. New Garden became the 75th 500 winner. So 31 of 75, 31 of 75 have at least 10 career victories. Okay. And then unfortunately, back in the day, some of them unfortunately did not. Well, there weren't as many races, and some of them didn't live long enough right, to, to right. be able to get the double-digit wins. John at JG Major 7, May 22nd, Kurt Cavan asks, Roger Penske is texting, wants to know how many Penske drivers are in Tier 1. James Hinchcliffe answers, zero. Yeah, look, it's not their year, man. Again, they're a Tier 2 group for sure. And then John says, I would not have disagreed, and nor would I. I can even look and see where did I, I bet – Somehow they got erased. I had Newgarden and Power in. I had Newgarden and Power in tier two. Either two or three. Some of my one note got erased that had those things. So maybe I can find it somewhere else. But I know I wasn't in tier one, and I'm not. I don't know. But yes, we didn't totally see that coming. The drivers did swear to us 
that the race cars were good, but I wondered if they could get all the way there. Indeed, they can get all the way there. So I think that's a good sign for future years that you don't – it's nice, but you don't have to qualify up front. I said, and I know because I've, I repeated myself many times to different people, that the Tier 1 had the four Ganassis and, and Pato Award. And as you know, those four Ganassis, Sato might or Dixon might have been the, the one that didn't really show up. Sato to some degree as well. But obviously, uh, you know, Erickson was there and Polo was there. And then, then I said that uh, there are four cars in Tier 2, but all nine of those can win the race. My differentiation was I had Ferrucci in tier two, and I just said, I've got a feeling about this. So that was one that I, that I had pretty high in that regard. One more question in this segment uh, from Ricky Butler. They don't warm up tires when they make green flag stops. Why was it necessary after a red flag? Good point. Fair question, right? You are coming out you also in have some new cases. Tires usually. Yeah, usually on new tires, trying to race someone on cold tires. Now, generally, though, you are just conceding. They are conceding in turn three, but there's not even a warm up lap there. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a tire engineer. I don't know. Hey, let, let's. If I'm in Marcus Erickson's situation, my biggest thought is every other year in the past, once we get to a certain point, the race is over. I was in front. I should have won this race. I went through this last year when I thought the race should be over. I've done it twice here this year, not again. So 20, I get it. And, and in 2013, for example, that was just a, a very minor situation in turn one with Dario's car against the wall, not two cars on the front straightaway. And they still had three laps to go, and they just let it roll out. Now, that was a different administration, so to speak, a uh, different race director by that I mean. Hey, look, like I said, um, my first reaction is they should have ended under caution. But when I watched it, took a step back and watched it, I, I see why they did it, and I liked it. Ultimately, yeah, I'm glad they didn't. It was better for the show. It gives you a lasting moment. Uh, I don't. I would have been perfectly happy had Marcus won again. But I I said I thought we'd have a new winner. I suspect it would be Pillow would have been my guest if it was a new winner in that regard. Turns out it was a new winner. We haven't even talked about his celebration. We're going to do that coming up in, in just a moment. I thought Elio's was going to be tough to top, and, and maybe this didn't, but it was definitely unique, and it felt really, really natural as well. We'll get to that more of your questions all coming up, we'll talk about uh, wheel tethers and some other things going on and much more on the way on Trackside. This is Alex. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Below and you're listening to Trackside. Hour number two, post-Indianapolis 500, heading to Detroit Sunday afternoon here on the radio and on NBC. Coming up, it's a busy weekend. A pair of Indy Next by Firestone races. The IMSA Michelin Pilot Challenge is there this weekend. 
uh, and some other support races and a brand new event no longer on Belle Isle. It's downtown Detroit. Looking forward to seeing how this split pit lane operates. Pit lane will have, I think it's 13, basically 13 on one side, 14 on the other, something <laughs> like that. But you go right, you go left. And ideally, no one loses or gains any time out of that. So uh, I will be curious to see all how that works. Very unique. You've got apparently a lot of slow speed corners, 35 mile per hour corners. One of them coming at the end of a straightaway that's longer. James Hinchcliffe today on our conference call. Then the straightaway in the GP at Indy. And you've got to slow down to 35 miles per hour and first gear, so this is going to be really interesting how this works. Uh, you, it's, it's a fascinating engineering exercise because no one knows. Not only the track, they can guess and do simulations and things like that, and I'm sure they've done some measuring. People have gone up there and do what they do technology-wise to see exactly what the surface is made of, what type of concrete, if there's any asphalt, and try to simulate that. Um but I'm sure everyone takes a lot of pride coming out of there and getting it right on a brand new event. But some will get it right and some will get it really wrong. So you could have a wide disparity and you might have some surprises. In some ways, it's an educated guest this weekend. And you might have someone normally that's not awesome get it perfectly right and be a big factor from the very beginning. So I think that'll be a lot of fun this weekend. First practice is Friday afternoon, 3 o'clock on Peacock, race on NBC on Sunday. So Hope you can join us. And again, a lot of free tickets are there this weekend. So check all that out with the uh, the event this weekend. Is it the, I'm sure it's a Chevy sponsored event. I, I don't even have it in front of me what the name of the race is. Che I'm not Chevrolet. Yeah, the Chevrolet Detroit Grand Prix presented by Lear, just as it was on Belle Isle. Okay. So uh, three o'clock uh, airtime for the radio network and for NBC on Sunday. And then race is like three forty-five. I think maybe three o'clock airtime. I'm pretty sure I saw it. Well, I heard a I heard a promo earlier here in my ears of this very radio show we're doing that said two thirty. So oh. for radio, I suspect you're right that it's three p.m. on NBC. Though I I do believe that's correct, but they may get a little jump on us on IndyCar Radio coming up this weekend. So look for that. More Twitter questions at Kevin Lee 23 at Kurt Cavan. Lee50S says, a friend of mine asked me about a swarm of bees at the race on Sunday. I had not heard anything of it. Do you have any info? Just from what some of the media types were, were tweeting, was it kind of outside the media center uh, up high? Correct. It was up high above kind of the, the north end of the media center. And actually, it seemed to be relatively harmless. There were a lot of bees but they seem very disinterested in the in the fans below them and and it was quite the distance by the way i mean it was probably 15 feet from the the top of a person's head up to the where the bees were but it was an interesting sight and you could see them kind of flying around in the air up high but they seem not interested in the fans so that's good that is good PD Lounge says, so much to talk about. I thought when Callum Eilat and RHR stayed out and took the lead with 12 to go, they might be able to make it if there was a lot of yellow. Did the Reds prevent enough yellow laps from occurring to keep them home in front? 
Good so question. The answer, no, the there was no way they were going to make it. They had pitted like on 153. That would have been 47 laps. There's no way well, they were going to Well, that's what I thought it. too, but two strategists. Yeah. So I asked Tim Tim Sendrick said they might be able to make it. He kind of knows what he's doing. I think that's more just being worried. And then I heard Larry Foyt telling Santino, you know, unfortunately we're seventh. Just make the best of it. I think those three can make it. So that's why I asked him that question. And then they pitted immediately. I don't think they would have made it. But if it was normal yellows, if it was the way the race used to be run, meaning it just runs out under yellow, then I think it's more like a Stefan Wilson situation and Oriol Servia a few years ago, you know, where they're out there hoping for a yellow and they're pitting on lap 196. Bertrand like Baguette that. and uh, yeah. Robbie Gordon. Robbie Gordon, the year Kenny Brack won. So, yep. yeah, I hear you, but that would have just been for TV time. I, I just, they were not, they were not going to make it. No. Even, I mean, I think the whole end of the race would have had to be on yellow. Had it finished all the way under yellow, even then it would have been close. That's all. That, that's a lot of laps to go, but that's interesting. But yes, when when the red flags come out, that does change things. It means you're just not getting as much extra. There's not as much benefit when there is a crash if you're trying to do something different on fuel. Kurt St. Angelo says uh, here was a chance meeting. Uh, okay, I don't think this is really for the show, but thank you for the picture, Kurt. He got some of his friends together and got to meet them. So thank you for that. Uh, Paul Ingram. It was indeed a green-white checker, but did not add any laps to the race. All good if there's a chapter and verse in the rules allowing it, but it seems many, including drivers, teams, and spectators, uh, who are not prepared. Any precedent for this? Well, 97, we went back to green with one lap to go, right? Surprising the guy in second place, yeah, we did. Scott Goodyear. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think I said 97, they black flagged the leader. That would have been 95 if I said that earlier. That's um, right. It- 90, Scott, uh, you know, unfortunately was really close three different times. And finished second two of those times, but 97, Ari won, and we thought it was ending under yellow, and all of the sudden, the white and the green came out together, and they're apparently, it it caught some by surprise. So I know that, you know, Scott wasn't prepared in second, and Ari I don't know if he was prepared or not either, but there was really no challenge at the end. So it was not the first time time uh, this had happened. Mags Ratcliffe at IndyCar Teach tweeted me and Hinch, who won? Who had the most hours on air? Your fans want to know. So I think I uh, outlasted Hinch. I didn't have all 60 hours of NBC coverage, but... I think the deciding factor would have been carb day when I was in the booth for the pit stop competition and Hinch was given the afternoon off. So I would have finished two, two and a half hours ahead of him. Otherwise, I think maybe I was an hour up on him because we both got Monday off. So we did not do the two-hour show the Monday after qualifying. And... I think I had one session off on GP, the IndyCar warm-up, because the Indy next race was after that. I usually don't work the warm-up if there's a an Indy Lights or an Indy next race. So what I guess that is I got 57 in. So I'll, I'll try to do better next year. I'll try to do better <laughs> next It It actually was fine. <laughs> Our producer said... Uh, 
you guys were still talking and I couldn't believe you were talking and we were all amazed and say, hey, I ain't digging ditches. This is fine. I'm doing what people in the stands are doing. I'm watching cars go around and we're talking and we're pretending like we know what we're talking about. And one of us really does know what they're talking about. And his name is James Hinchcliffe. So it was fun. In all transparency, though, I did hear you say, uh, yeah, you're talking on this radio show. I've talked too much. So... (laughs) Oh, by the time I got home, I was done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm still a little bit thin. I could use a couple of more days. Uh, here, here's our other, if you listen, people like to listen to the scanners and hear some of our inside chatter. So if you were listening before the broadcast on Sunday, if you had the scanner and kind of hear when we're chatting during a commercial before we went on NBC, if you heard uh, Mike Tirico say something like, uh, we would all check in to make sure our microphone would work and to make sure that the pit box could hear us. And I think Mike's response was something like, and here's, uh, and no one knows Indianapolis like Kevin Lee. And that would have just, he was hoping to introduce me on the show at some point, but the format just didn't work out where he was throwing it to me. And that's a running joke because, uh, Mike and and Diff and I have a tradition that started by happenstance five years ago of going to dinner together on Saturday night and the broadcasts have gone well. So, you know, I I skipped one of the event with some of Jackson's partners on Saturday because I'm not going to be the one that breaks that. Plus, I think it's pretty cool to get to sit and listen to Mike Tirico for, you know, just the, the three of us and a couple of Diff's friends came around this time. But as we went each year, we find that I don't know anything about anything anywhere other than my cul-de-sac here. Because as you know, I don't leave the grid. So we're driving around and yeah, I know the Crown Hill Cemetery and other things, but they're asking for directions and yeah, I can't help you there. So that's where it is. No one knows Indy like Kevin Lee because Kevin Lee doesn't really know Indy very much or at least how to get anywhere or what restaurants are good because, you know, I go to the Panera in Plainfield and I go to Applebee's and, yeah, that's pretty much it. So there you go. If you heard that mentioned, it was not to show that I'm some authority. It was true. No one knows Indy like me that's from Indy. Most know it a little bit better. You got to go to Jake Query <laughs> if you really want to know Indy. Jake Query does know Indy. Yeah. Uh, Ed asks, I think he's replying to someone else. So I had this question um, about why Kyle Kirkwood's visor was up. You know, saying, hey, you need to keep your visor up uh, because of the sparks. I'm not sure that Kyle put his visor up. Maybe he did, or maybe it maybe it got knocked up. But I don't suspect he was putting his visor up while he was going upside down in, in that circumstance there. That's probably the next thing we want to speak to. Scary, scary stuff, and we're all holding our breath. And luckily, that wheel goes over the grandstand and only hits a car, and I'm hoping the owner of that car is taken care of and more than just the insurance part of that. Uh, Nate Ryan at NBCSports.com has a story with a couple of quotes from Roger Penske, and, you know, Roger is on top of this before anyone had asked him and basically said, you know, I already talked with the two top people at Delara on Monday morning, and we're going to make sure that this does not happen again. As vicious and violent as these crashes are, it's remarkable that the tether system that they put in, what, over 20 years ago? 1999. Yeah, after what happened at Charlotte, and there was an issue at Michigan in a cart race, and 
generally speaking, yes, wheels might come off, but they're not flying off. But in this case, it was sheared from a different spot. So, you know, oftentimes you learn something out of tragedies, like with Dale Earnhardt's death. Luckily, we are going to learn something without the worst case scenario happen. So the the smart people at Delara and IndyCar will work on this, and nothing is ever 100% foolproof, unfortunately, in something like this. But I feel very confident they'll come up with something to significantly reduce the chance of that ever happening again. Yeah, I want to I want to walk down there and and look at kind of how the opening there is between turn 2 and the suites, how that I mean I have some reference points from watching the broadcast. But um it was it was I saw it immediately. I saw it immediately. I in fact I didn't see Kirkland Kirkland. <laughs> There's a joke behind that. Some listeners will get that. Kirkwood um, I saw Kirkwood after the fact, but I was more focused on the tire because I've been to enough of these. I was in Charlotte when that happened. I was, yeah, you know, I mean, I've seen these things happen. I was there in 87 when the tire went, went flying. So it's, uh, that's, that's our worst nightmare is parts of, uh, equipment, whether, no matter how you define equipment, but equipment going over the fence. Now, it's possible because, you know, one thought is, well, is there anything we can do with a catch fence? Can we angle it more? Can it be raised up? Because it's been raised up at times over the years. But it's possible. You know, for example, it did not land in the stands. For it to land in the stands, the catch fence might have caught it. They might have that figured out that, generally speaking, to land in the fence, it's going to go up at an angle that the catch fence stops it. Again, I doubt there's a way you can 100% guarantee that if something barely, if it's basically a Texas leaguer, you know, if it's a not a line drive and it's a pop fly type of situation, but it's also something that, that I'm sure that they will look at. Is there a way that we can, in certain areas of the track, do something, if not higher, a different angle, all of those kinds of things, you know, unfortunately, that's really expensive to do that, but uh, it'll be looked at. The easiest thing to think about, and I say easy because it's not easy, but is just addressing the cars. Let's do everything we can to keep the cars from leaving the racetrack and parts of them in that fashion in that big of a chunk. We have enough evidence or trial and error, if you will. Um, we have enough incidents in the logbook to know that that doesn't happen very often. That was pretty much a freak situation. Yeah. I don't know how yeah. it came off, but but we have a lot of data from, from over the last 23, four years that says those things don't happen. We've we've sort of figured it out. And this was a, you know, perfect storm type situation. So they may still have the best, you know, deterrent from that happening already in place. Uh, from Michael Ellison, red flag or no red flag, someone was going to feel cheated by the results either way. Yeah, true, that, that's true. It. There was, there was no one hundred percent win. It it just doesn't happen in those kind of situations. You know, the thing that Marcus Erickson said that I think best sums it up for the whole paddock, not just Marcus, is we've just not seen something like that happen. Uh, in this Indy 500. I mean, 
you can't find a race, even the 97 race, those cars were already circulating around the racetrack in 97, and they threw the green flag to finish the final lap. They hadn't parked them on pit road and said, we're under red flag. Uh, Next time you come back around here, which for some of those drivers wasn't even a full lap because they were pitted on the south end of the Yard of Bricks. So some of them didn't even make a full lap. And in fact, the green flag comes out and they're in the middle of turn four. So they just, they hadn't seen a situation like that. And I think everyone, you know, if, if pressed would have said they are not restarting the race with two laps to go. From Brandon, why does IndyCar media seem to love Santino Ferrucci considering his past in F2 in 2018 before immediately coming to IndyCar that same summer after getting banned in Europe. I think my question could be the other way as why do so many people want to see Santino Ferrucci canceled forever because of transgressions, which I don't know that I know the full story of from when he was whatever, 17, 18, 19 years old. Some uh, may not have been fully him, might have been others around him. Why is he not allowed a second chance? Why is this asked so much of him? What I have seen of him is he has comported himself well. Now, I know that not all the drivers like him, and I'm fine with that. Some of my friends who are drivers do not care for him uh, because of the way he races them. And that's fine. I'm not racing him, so I have a different perspective of this. What I know is that he's interesting. And we need interesting. He's willing to be a little bit combative. He's willing to say what he wants to say. And in this particular race, he's not just getting favoritism because he has big hair. He has gained now 54 spots in his five Indy 500s. Has finished, what, third, fourth, seventh, uh, top ten, all five. But I know he's got a third, a fourth, and a seventh starting way back on teams that are not juggernauts. And by the way, he got so much attention in this race because he's driving for A.J. Foyt. And our job is to try to introduce this sport and get people clicking through on Memorial Day weekend that might only watch this one time a year and get them something that they can relate to or a name that they know. And unfortunately, if we polled 100 Americans or 1,000 Americans, not IndyCar fans, not sports fans, people who might watch you on television, and listed every name that we mentioned during the broadcast, every driver, anyone, the two names that are going to get the highest percentage of recognition are who? A.J. Foyt, Mario Andretti. By (laughs) two to three times? Yes, yeah. I mean, if you're just talking uh, a general audience, if you're doing it like like a political poll and just randomly calling people. So when we can say we're trying to grow the sport, trying we're running a business here, as Tony Soprano would say, we want people flipping by who might not be interested and they hear the name A.J. Foyt and they remember watching the race in the 80s. Oh, A.J. Foyt's still there. OK. Ooh, that's his car. I'm in. Maybe we're being too presumptuous on that, but you want stars. 
And A.J. Foyt is still a star, and he's there smiling, and his car is in contention. And we have not been able to say that in a long time. So the focus on Santino this year was not really about Santino so much. It was about A.J. Foyt. There also were uh, – let's, let's be honest. And he was there running about, third, by the way. He was running third. About, he could have won the race. There were about <laughs> five cars in this race that mattered. Honestly, there were about five. Mm-hmm. Errol McLaren had two of them. Penske had one of them. Ganassi had two of them. And Santino Ferrucci. There's six. Anybody else? Let me see. Uh, no. No one else. I don't even Alex Polo or even uh even Alexander Rossi wasn't much of a factor. There were six guys that mattered in this race. And to Brandon's question, especially early in his career. You know, I think we probably discussed it at some point on a race or more likely during a practice show. But even that, I don't know how to do that. One, you can't do that in a race broadcast. If I try to do a pit report that lasts more than 20 seconds, you won't be seeing me on the next race broadcast. It doesn't work that way. The booth could maybe discuss it, but it's too much in the weeds. And there are too many nuances to this story. It is... Okay, we could say he had a cell phone in a car uh, that he should not have done. And he bumped the teammates uh, on the cool-down lap. That's not good. He's probably not the first or the last that's done something stupid like that when they were 18 years old. Doesn't he get another chance at some point in life? Or should yeah, he have to yeah. go away forever? He He's had, what, five really good years in this series? I'm happy to talk about him when he's running third in the Indy 500 and leading it, by the way, late in the race. So we've had these kind of conversations within the people that cover uh, the sport and especially early on wondered, you know, do we need to address this? And some of the other guys would say, you know what? I've had dealings with Santino and I found him nothing but delightful. And that's my experience as well. And, and I know that, you know, sometimes drivers are going to kiss up a little bit to the broadcasters, especially when they're, they're former drivers. But I'm around him enough, um, and I'm not racing him. It's a different story. But I'm around him enough and see how he interacts with other people. I like Santino Ferrucci. So I will admit that I kind of root for Santino Ferrucci as well. I know not everyone does, but I'll go back to what I said originally. I'm interested in the show doing well and the sport doing well, and we need people like Santino Ferrucci. Everyone wants drivers that are willing to be villains. You can't be a villain. You, you, you need corporate sponsorship. You can't be a villain. The closest you're going to get is someone like Santino or Connor Daly that are willing to kind of say what's on their mind, and, and that's fantastic. Um, but a fair question. Because we, we do love us some Santino. And it kind of started because Dale Jr. got captivated by him in 2019. And the guy drove through the grass. That's interesting. You, know, you got visuals. Yeah. You got highlights. Yeah. Uh, Tim, I think we answered this. When this is how I started, he asked, how was this different from 2020? Shouldn't be a subjective decision by race control. So, yeah, we got into that just a little bit. Okay. Um, we need to, well, we need to regroup and see what we've missed. I know ratings came out. I have a couple of thoughts there. We'll tell you what we know on that. We need to look at who did great and who had frustrating days and some other things as well. All coming up. Trackside 93.5, 107.5, the fan. Hi, this is out. Al- 
Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Alexander Rossi, and you're listening to Trackside. All right, a few other nuggets that I have, and we'll check the Twitter inbox again in just a moment before we look into the box score. Um, did you notice that when Joseph Newgarden after, oh, by the way, we didn't, I said we'd talk about this. Let's do this first. How cool was Newgarden's celebration? That was very cool. Um, very cool. Um, I just I wonder, though, what's next? What, what would somebody do to top that? But uh, no, it was cool that he had thought about it. You know, it's cool that somebody who had invested as much time in the Indy 500 as he has that had a plan. You know, and I, I asked him before the, I don't know, may have been Thursday. I said, your your bus brother's teammate, bus bro's teammate's not going to pour milk on his head. He's just going to drink it and he's going to hand it off. He's not going to pour it on his head. He wants to do. And Joseph said, hey, he can do whatever he wants. I'm pouring it on my head. <laughs> hmm. So it was clear he had thought about what post-race might look like if he won the race. It's a great visual. I would not want that milk on me for the next three hours before you have a chance to, to clean up. But boy, is it a great picture. And yeah, I get why at that point, you just don't care. You don't care about anything. So yeah, you'd probably go ahead and pour it on your head. Uh, and I, he was smart not to take his helmet off. I felt like he was pretty safe. You know, if you're safe to crash at 225 miles per hour, I feel like you're going to be okay going up in the grandstands like that with your full crash helmet. So that was really, really well thought out. And then Ryan Blaney, uh, his Penske sweeps the weekend. They win the, the Coke 600 on Monday that took, did I see five hours? It took five hours to do that race. And then they had to finish the Xfinity race after that as well. But he did the same thing. And I think Justin Allgaier did the same thing when he won the Xfinity race. So that was great. But then did you notice when Joseph climbed back in the car to wheel it to victory lane, as he's sitting there, he's flexing his left hand, looking at it. So I hope he didn't hurt his hand on the fence or someone high-fiving him too hard. So it's going to be a question we'll need to ask when we see him Thursday at Detroit to make sure that that hand is okay. Uh, the, other th- there was a, the other thing I noticed – and then I'll get to a really good story that Nate Ryan had today on Joseph and his family. Did you notice on the ride around? And I've, I've made this comment before. I don't know if I've said it publicly, but I've talked with Joseph about this. Uh, his dad, Joey, I think is the perfect racing dad. Do you see Joey anymore? No. No. He wins. His son wins the Indy 500. And Joey Newgarden, and I don't. No, if I would give up my seat, he doesn't ride around on the Corvette. Uh, his mom, Tina, is on there. Roger is on there. And essentially, I think he gave up his seat to Tim Sendrick. Now, maybe Joey was nowhere to be found because he's celebrating wherever he's watching the race. Um, but I suspect by then he was down there and he may have just said, this is Joseph's moment. It's not my moment. I'm going to stand over here and be proud. And that is another example why since Jackson started racing, Joey always has come to talk to me and offer without me asking advice on how to do things. And he is one of the people that I listen to. And there's a really good story by Nate today 
uh, about, you know, everyone that wins this, everyone that is successful in motorsport, someone has gotten them there. And then there are some that the best path is a great deal of family wealth, or you meet the right person at some point like Marcus Erickson did, who pays for you all the way. It's not family wealth for Marcus. He found a benefactor who paid for him. That's the easiest way. Someone that can just write checks. And then there's the people that just have to hustle. And that's what the new garden family did. And his dad, um, would say, you know, I didn't do it, but it has been referred to that they were putting in the work and the sacrifices that they made. And now his son has made it and he's not managing sponsor groups anymore or doing anything along with that. He's just hanging out in the suite, enjoying the weekend. He's still here, but even early in Joseph's career, never had a headset on. I'm not here to run the race team. That's what, that's what these people are doing. So I'm really happy for Joey. Jo- Joey and Tina are wonderful people. And uh, I think we're going to see a different Joseph Newgarden. Joseph's been awesome, but it's been kind of hinted at here in the last day or so. It's been tense at times in the summer because I know how much pressure he puts on himself. And when he doesn't win the Indy 500, then it's, well, I've got to win the championship to kind of salvage this season. And there are times, and he admits, you know, and the story was about, how his wife, Ashley, is the one that, you know, he has said she has to kind of bear the brunt of that. And I feel bad for her. And she's the one that's kind of got me recentered and remind me about some other positives in life and to, to kind of accept what is what will be. So that's what I, I think we're going to see more of the all the time happy-go-lucky Joseph. And he's still been wonderful. But it's tense at times when it's not I going thought- well. Yeah, I so, thought the I thought ahead. the moment of the race, the 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 visual that that I will take from this race wasn't Joseph going into the stands or him clutching his his fist in the air. It was his wife watching the last part of the race and then dropping to her knees in just exhilaration. You know, you, you know, just drop falling to her knees. And I thought that really summed up the moment. You know, I know he still had a lot of years left, but you never know because Mario Andretti had a lot of years left and Michael Andretti had a lot of years and you could name others. uh, Who am I thinking? Lloyd Ruby had a lot of years where he didn't get there and on and on and on. So, um, Really happy in that part. Uh, some other things. Oh, I said we we touch on ratings. Um, always depends on how you want to look at it, you know. And I will admit, I, I'm always hoping for nine million people watching. Uh, you'd really like to get to five and a half or whatever. And when I first saw whatever it was, four point nine two million, I'm like, oh, I was hoping it'd be a little bit higher. And then you see, well, it's up two percent. And we've said this for a few years now. <laughs> Anytime in today's environment, when you go up. Even flat is kind of up. The other number that stood out a bit was the share, a 13 share. So that means 13% of the people watching television, which is kind of all you can. It's hard. You're trying. But if people have something they're going to do, they're going to do it. So you really are competing with the people who are willing to watch television at that time. And that was the best since 2008, which I think is pretty significant and kind of reminds us 
how much less television people are watching. That's not just the, you know, I don't know if that counts if you're watching Netflix. Are you still watching television at that time? I don't know that. That would be something that would matter. The other thing that I think impacts a rating is this is a pretty decent sized market in Indianapolis. People always ask, does that count? Yes, it does count. The, the delay on Channel 13 counts. Back in the day, even the tape delay was 15, 20, whatever. And it's, I think it was, Nathan Brown had this today, over 30% uh, in 2016, 33.6% for the 100th that was not blacked out. And in 2020, when it was not blacked out, 25 21, 21%. In today's environment, I don't know where we as kids always listen to the radio or went to the race and then watch it that night. Even before I saw, saw that number, I thought, well, that's going to be dwindling. That's not going to be high because you kind of feel like you've seen the meaningful moments on social media. IndyCar on NBC is going to tweet out. 30, 45 second clips. IndyCar is tweeting out clips of the broadcast. You are seeing interviews archived. It's not only do you, yes, we already knew what happened back in the day, but you had not seen how it happened. You had maybe been there at the race and watched it and you would listen to it on the radio. Now, if you have social media at all, you have seen all of the big moments. So in some ways getting a just under a, I think it was a nine or a nine and a half local rating which was better than last year. It was a 5-7 last year. That's not good. Um, so I think that's an impact. If this is a different discussion, this people smarter than me decide what the value is, whether it's worth it to black it out for ticket sales or if you can create more fans that will come to the race next year by airing it live. Uh, I'm not smart enough to know the answer to that. But I do know that I think you would have topped the 5 million mark pretty easily if because I think you're getting a couple hundred thousand people in Indianapolis to watch the thing live, if you're watching it live, if it's airing probably. Live. But I can tell you that that the fact they announced three hundred thirty thousand people is significant, and it turned out mm-hmm. to be every bit as good for the month as uh, 2016, and everybody at yeah. 16th and Georgetown is happy. That's significant. Is the month. You not only had 3.30 on race day, but you had weekends that are bigger crowds than anybody else is getting for an IndyCar weekend event. Well, close. If, if they had whatever they said, 75 or 80 uh, for qualifying, what's bigger than that? Just one, Long Beach? Yeah, probably just Long Beach. It's 75. My guesstimate apparently was correct <laughs> when I said that during carb day. That that's what Roger Penske said about seventy five thousand. That's four hundred thousand people. I know some of them are the same people. There was a huge crowd on Legends Day out there. It took me thirty minutes to get into the track at one o'clock in the afternoon for our rehearsal on Legends Day. And then you had a, a you had a better GP crowd. So I'm going to put to rest any debate about that race going away. I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. That's here to stay for a little while. If if you can add two more races to the schedule and feel like you need to delete one, it's going to be the one in August because you're not getting the kind of crowd for a practice day. Even if we make a big deal of it, I don't think 
that we saw for those two days on the road course. I think I think uh, the Indy 500 in this community, and I know this is strange to say, but I think it it is really starting to matter. You know what I mean? In terms of everyone, it seems like it's 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 touching just so much more people. The combination mm-hmm. of of the attention, the banners across town, the sign on the on the on the hotel, the porch parties, the events. It's touching more people than I remember a decade or so ago. And that's one of the reasons why I want the GP to remain, because I want Indianapolis to also know that there is an IndyCar series, that they do more than just race on Memorial Day weekend. You know what else I thought was really up, and it helped because it's the first time in a while they've had good weather. Uh, Raceway Park was pretty packed on Friday night. The The Silver good. Crown and the Midget Race were early. It was full. There was It was still half full. When the uh, series formerly known as the Road to Indy, the USF Pro Championships races were going on uh, late Friday night, you know, and the last one didn't end until like 11.15 or something like that. So racing is is on the upswing here in the area. A couple other notes I wanted to mention. Oh, this big news. And credit to NASCAR for not worrying. I think we all wondered when Chase Elliott, if you didn't see it, it was pretty clear that he turned uh who was it denny hamlin denny hamlin and denny hamlin called him out it probably helps that it's someone of denny hamlin's stature calling him out who also has a very well listened to podcast and might continue to rail on nascar so it was probably best for them to nip this in the bud chase elliott is suspended the most popular nascar driver will not be racing this weekend replaced by Corey lejoy at their race at gateway and hendrick says they will not appeal They will request a playoff waiver. Uh, The other thing I saw, courtesy of Back to IndyCar, Racer.com. I'm looking for the actual story so I can get the date correct. Linus Lundquist is going to test at Sebring for Ed Carpenter Racing coming up sometime soon. The same day that Toby Sowery is testing for Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan Racing. So last year's Indy Lights, now Indy Next by Firestone Champion, Gets a chance for this team uh, to show what he can do, and word will spread, and we'll get into this another time. But there's going to be a lot of things happening if they've not already been happening. I suspect there are already some deals that have been signed for next year. We'll learn about really soon that we'll have some movement, and if not signed, they've been agreed to. And you may have people that make changes before the season is even. I'm not talking about these specific ones. I'm just saying in general, <laughs> when if, if someone is on the way out at the end of the year, you never know what's going to happen. So just stay tuned on that. All right, let's peek at the box score a little bit. Um, we've, we've talked about Newgarden and Erickson and Ferrucci. How about Alex Pillow? If he, so, if, yeah, go ahead. If he comes back to win this championship, we will circle today, even with single points as opposed to double points, you know, he gets collected by Renus VK on pit road, gets essentially sent to the back of the pack, comes battling back and finishes fourth. That is a huge swing. He scored he scored 45 points uh, for the race event, including qualifying, which is a huge get. He could have been down, say, in the 20s. Um, so if he comes back to win the title, this may be a pivotal day. Was his car fast enough 
to win. I assume it was. I don't know that in the fight. You know, once Newgarden was up there, I would presume it was about the same as Erickson. So if he doesn't have that, I can't say he was going to win, but he had probably at least a 33% chance of winning or 25%. He was in that four. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He was, yeah. he was right there. That was a, a tremendous drive on his part. And that's really why, you know, that's, that solidifies why I felt so good about him being a race winning contender. Had he not been taken out, he might've been in that light lead two or three at the finish. Two years in a row, he could have, should have won the race and through no fault of his own. You know, Scott Dixon, it's 0.6.9 miles per hour, whatever it was. But ultimately, that's his very, very minor mistake for last year. Other years, not so much. Two years, not so much. But this is two years ago, two years in a row, where Pelot might have been the best. And then, by the way, three years ago, he finished second and might have been the best that time around uh, as well. Scott Dixon, I'm sorry that I picked him to win the race. And then he, if he's going to stay in the championship, this might be one that saves him. He's dropping like a rock and comes back to finish sixth. So that was a mega drive for him. Uh, I would say Connor Daly had a good day, not a great day. Uh, he, I saw him after the race and he said, just, you know, the car it was good. But we just didn't have the speed. Even if we'd gotten up front, we didn't have the pace that the others did. And I think Ed probably felt that way as well. I know he felt that way on carb day. He was involved in a, in a crash late in the day. VK was quick, and he, he took himself out of it. So, unfortunately, this is a, yet another year where he has a car fast enough to win, and he does not give himself uh, a chance to win. The Andrettis were pretty good. Kyle Kirkwood was the one of the Andrettis that I gave the best chance to, and he was on the way. He was up to a legit third at one point. I saw, I didn't notice this, but I guess he had a slightly slow pit stop uh, on the last one, and he was running basically seventh when he was caught up in that crash and, and came up on the Rosenquist crash. Oh, how about Felix? That one hurts. And, you know, I fear that he needed, he might have needed to win, and needed a good result. Now, so I, I unfortunately don't see much of a path unless he, if the decision's not been made and someone's not been signed, he's going to need to win multiple races. I do think he is well-regarded enough. I do think Felix will have a job, and I think he will probably have a couple of choices for a job next year that pays. So – Zach Brown was in the media center and said, made a reference to, you know, we need to probably make a decision by July, but I fear, fear Felix may have maybe scooped up before that. I think, I think he knows what Felix is going to do because Felix needs to move before Zach's ready to make a decision one way or the other. I think Felix already has a plan. And I, and I think Felix is not willing to trust that they will have a seat for him because he was dangled all year last year, and the only reason he got to come back is because Alex Pelot couldn't get extricated from his contract. If Pelot gets what he thought he was going to get and his people told him he was going to get out of his contract with Ganassi, Felix is driving in Formula E this year at this yep. point, which is not where he wants to be right now. So, yes, I think if he's already been offered a deal or if he is soon – then I think Felix is going to take that deal rather than taking the chance of staying there because I, I just and he'll he'll know the lay of the land. That's why he has a manager and he has a very good manager, Stefan Johansson, 
who knows what's up. And he's going to know if Marcus Erickson is headed there or if someone else. I think Marcus is the only other one. I think it's either three cars for Errol McLaren full-time next year or a fourth is for Marcus Erickson. All right, we'll, we'll see what we I, missed coming up in a moment. Go ahead. I think they're going to be three cars next year. I think it is going to be one more year before they're four. He, Zach Brown made that point pretty clear. Again, I can't say that for certain, but he seemed to indicate that because they don't have the shop space to do four right now. It'd be hard. It would be a real obstacle to do that. All right, more to come in a moment. Trackside. Hi, this is Scott Dixon. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. And you're listening to Trackside on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Final segment, Kurt, what have we missed? Well, we know that uh, Connor Daly is advocating for the Borg Warner Trophy to show <laughs> Joseph's abs, uh, not just okay. his face. That's not going to happen, but we like the thought. Caitlin Brown going over the wall on yeah. the left rear, left rear tire of Joseph Newgarden. So a woman goes to victory lane in that respect. Pato Award was, quote, very, very, very happy to see Joseph win meaning Erickson did not win. So I think that'll be a storyline as we go to Detroit and beyond. Kyle Kirkwood saying impact, which is huge. We just talked about Errol McLaren moving shops. They confirmed yesterday they're moving into the Andretti shop. I think we knew that, but uh, that's a significant upgrade in size. Uh, But that won't be until 2025. So I think that's that's why they may hold off on a fourth car in 2024 and then go four cars in 25. Uh, I saw Will Power. He got back to the hotel the same time I did, and he wasn't in my section. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, what happened in your race? I have no idea. I'm focusing on my nine cars. And he told me, you know, I brushed the wall. And he said, I think I had the best car I've ever had. Our cars were all really good. You know, maybe he wasn't going to be able to win the race from where he was still at, but he said the car was just awesome. And he also didn't have a weight jacker after early in the race, so he wasn't able to make the changes he wanted to. Uh, and p- perhaps most importantly, he had his wife Liz at the Indy 500, who has yep. had her health struggles in recent months. Uh, they really shared all and. Thank you to them. I'm not sure most of us are willing to do that, but in one of the recent episodes of 100 Days to Indy. So there is none this week, right? Uh, I don't believe there's one this week. Yes. I thought they had a week off, and then it's the next week. Maybe, maybe, yes. So check your local. My understanding has been that there's not one this week. I'm sure you'll see it on social media uh, that it might be next Thursday, and you might see something from the Burger Bash in that as well because they were there filming. One had also mentioned Devlin Francesco. I think that's his best career finish, 13th for the Indy 500. Ryan hunter Ray had a solid day, finished 11th, even though they couldn't adjust his wing during the race. So good for him on that front. And the Hunkos Hollinger cars were good. Canapino was great again until he got collected, running like 13th or 14th. And Callum Eilod finishes 12th in the Indy 500. Uh, Rutledge Wood uh, was here this weekend. His new show about the Hot Wheels transformation, that's coming up in just a few minutes. So that's on NBC if you want to give Rutledge's new primetime show. That's pretty cool, knowing somebody that's got a primetime show. I said, do you have any kind of a lead-in to that? I don't really watch television. He said, yeah, it's like America's number one show. America's Got Talent is the lead in. So he got a chance to make it in this business. 
Uh, Detroit this weekend. Watch us on NBC Sunday at 3 o'clock. Listen here on the radio, and we're back next Tuesday night at 7. For Eddie and Kurt, I'm Kevin. Thanks for joining us on 93.5107.5 The Fan.